But today we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 5. We'll read the verses and then we're going to dive right in. So Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. The first account I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you've heard of from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Did you know that there, there were two boats within the vicinity of the Titanic when it was going under? The one boat, the Californian, which is the boat on your left there, was the closer of the two boats. Californian was about 20 miles away. However, they had turned off their radio 10 minutes before the Titanic began to sink. They also saw rockets and flares coming from the direction of the Titanic, and they could not figure out why another boat would be firing off rockets and flares. They still, after seeing the rockets and flares, still did not turn on their radio, and they did absolutely nothing to investigate it. They saw the Titanic's lights flicker and turn off, and they were thinking that the Titanic must have just been going to bed. The author of this illustration says this. This is fascinating to think about. The crew of the Californian were so much into their own boat, they were so much in maintenance mode of what they were already doing that they could not imagine that the Titanic was sinking. For the rest of their lives, the members of the Californian had to wrestle with why they didn't go. The other ship, the Carpathia, 58 miles, 58 miles away, radio was on and they were absolutely ready when they heard the call for help. They navigated around icebergs in the night, ran full power ahead for three and a half hours. The crew showed up at the scene of the disaster. Many had perished, but they were able to save 705 lives. The danger of the church is to be like the Californian. The danger of the church is to get so wrapped up with itself to be caring more about the boat than what the boat was designed to do, which is what? Save souls. Save souls. 
The church is always in danger of focusing more on itself, its own programs, its own buildings, its own events, and forgetting the fact that Jesus Christ began the church as a rescue operation. I'd say we're more in danger of becoming a luxury cruise line, aren't we? Where we're more about entertainment, we're more about personal needs or apparent needs than we are about proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to a world that is drowning. The controlling principle of this entire book is found in the first two verses. Notice what Luke says here. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. What does began mean? It means the work isn't finished. Christ's mission is to be continued through our local congregation. Amen? That is why, one of the reasons why Jesus created the body of the church. It's a rescue operation. Luke is writing to a man named Theophilus. Theophilus is a real person, probably a patron of Luke. His name means loved of or friend of God. And Luke is doing what Jesus wants his disciples to be doing and all of us to be doing. He's actually discipling Theophilus. His first book is the Gospel of Luke written to Theophilus. And Luke and Acts can actually be combined into one book, Luke-Acts. So John gets in, in the way of that, but they are one book. And Luke is continuing this, and Theophilus is most likely a Christian at this point, and he wants to know something. What is the community of Christ like? And Luke says, well, let me tell you. This is what they are like. They are a, a, a church that is on mission, Notice the phrase, all that he began to do and teach. It means to initiate a process, an action, or it also means a state of being. I like that one. Next week, I give the state of the church address. I hope the state of our church is always on mission. That is my prayer for this church, that we are healthy inside and that we are reaching the outside. That is why Jesus created the church. For you and me to take what we know to be true about Jesus Christ and proclaim that in a world that needs hope right now. It's not an option. Is it? Notice what he says. It's all that he began to do and teach. So it's doing, it's being, acting, conforming to his image, and it's teaching, it's proclaiming. Until when? Until he had given them orders. I've gotten orders before I was in the military. I had to follow my orders. If I did not follow my orders, I was in serious trouble. What I did not realize is that my orders that brought me to Maine many, many years ago actually brought me to his, his orders. And these are eternal orders. These are orders for the apostles who represent who? You and I. 
Instead of focusing on our boat, we need to focus on our mission, don't we? Especially right now. 28 chapters. 28 chapters in the book of Acts. You know what it's about? The church on mission. Church being and doing exactly what Jesus Christ wants her to be and do. I'm excited about this book. I hope you're excited about this. We're going to be challenged, folks. We're going to be challenged. We're going to have to, we're going to, have to clear the deck of the boat sometimes. We're going to have to throw some things overboard that are actually hindering us from proclaiming the truth. If you go back to the orders, uh, definitely later on he says, you will be my witnesses. But if you go r- right to the last chapter of Luke, what are those orders Well, Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 46, he says, He said to them, Thus it is written that Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. And that repentance, here are the orders, for forgiveness of sins would be what? Proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. How does he prepare them for this? So, He doesn't give them, this is before the, Luke is recalling what he's doing before he gives them the orders until the day when he was taken up. So he's going to give them those orders. But what is he doing to prepare them for this? What does he do for for them before he sends them out? There's three keys that I think we we can pick up on here. And the first key is we need to have resurrection conviction. We need to have resurrection conviction. Notice in verse 2, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs over a period of 40 days. I did not think that I would ever use these individuals... (laughs) as an illustration in church in a positive light, but I'm about to. Are you guys familiar with um, stop oil protesters? Does anyone hear stop oil protesters? Yeah, familiar with stop oil? If not, you should go look them up on YouTube. It's kind of, they're kind of amusing to watch at times. So the stop oil protesters, they, they go around and what they do is, is sometimes they'll link arms together all of them hold some signs up and they'll, they'll get right, right in the middle of a road that's busy with traffic. And, and they sit in the road and they don't want anyone to go forward, which I think defeats the purpose because if the cars are idling, they are causing more carbon emission, right? So I, I don't know why they do that, but it doesn't make sense. But they also run onto fields at sporting events and they'll throw like orange paint and orange dust and stuff like that. They'll also go into museums and throw paint on, on beautiful, beautiful works of art. Thankfully, mostly the works of art are covered. But there is one thing that they do that is actually amazing when, when, when I think about it. These are individuals, when they're on the pavement, they will superglue themselves. Yeah, that's right. They take superglue. 
They put it on their hands, or in this guy's case, on his face. And they superglue themselves to the pavement so people can't move them. Now, I don't agree with their premise. I don't agree with what they believe. I don't agree with their practice, but I'll tell you what, I think the church of Jesus Christ can learn something about these people's conviction. This is their gospel. This is what they believe. This is their belief in salvation, how we save the world, and they are willing to glue their faces to pavement. Holy cow! That's crazy. But they believe it. What is Jesus doing here? He's producing an unstoppable conviction in them. He's presenting himself alive over and over and over and over again. Why? Because that's the message they have to proclaim. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what it would be like for Jesus to just pop in your house for four, the next 40 days? Do you think your priorities in life are going to change a bit? I hope so. You'll be playing a video game, and you're like, oh, what am I doing? He's alive. He's giving them reassurance. He's giving them confidence because they're going to have to go out and try to convince other people, right? Folks, he gives us that conviction or the ability to have that conviction because he gives it right here. How convinced are we? How convinced are we? Change it of this truth because this truth changes our lives and this truth changes the world. The principle that Jesus, the truth that Jesus Christ is, is living means that you and I are forgiven and it means that no matter, no matter what pain or, or turmoil or tragedy happens in our lives, we have a hope that's unshakable. That should make us run out of these doors and tell the world that that has no hope right now. This is their hope. Saving the world, gluing their face to concrete. I'm not saying to go glue your face for Jesus. But, but hey, right? Do you think they believe in what they're doing? Yeah. And this is how they show it. Right now, besides these people, I don't know who else has, has conviction like that. We, we need conviction. We need to be certain. We need to be reassured. And the best way to do that is just spend time in God's word, especially the resurrection appearances. Let that change your life. This, the, the resurrection gives us motivation for mission, right? We have the truth. 
We have the hope. They need to hear that. And they need to see people with conviction like those stop oil protesters. Yeah, you might hate them, but hey, they're confident in what they believe in. It's the foundation of of the proclamation. That's why he's doing that. Without the resurrection, right, me and you can go home right now. It means absolutely nothing. But with it, it means everything. It means we're forgiven. It means that this world is not what it's all about. We must not be ashamed right now to have strong beliefs about this. The world right now is, it crumbles around us. They need to know. They need to know that there is a sure hope and they need to see people who have been transformed and convinced themselves of this truth. Second key. We need to have a good understanding of his kingdom. We need to have a good understanding of his kingdom. Verse the second, uh, third part of verse three there. So not only does he give them these convincing proofs, these these beyond a shadow of a doubt proof that he's alive, he gives them a systematic theology class on the kingdom of God because these guys really needed it. They needed to understand the difference between the earthly kingdom and man's kingdom. And God's kingdom. And guess what? Next week, we're going to see they still did not get it. These guys are thick, like you and me, and they didn't have the Holy Spirit. So this is a, that's a key point right there. Guy tells a story, uh, guy gives an illustration about the predicament of the American church right now. He says, it's kind of like we live in a, in a magic kingdom. The church is kind of like Disneyland. You buy your ticket, go in. Once you're inside the gates, everything you experience is controlled, right? We all, everything is nice and neat. The rides, the food, the shows, they're all there to entertain and amuse you. And all you have to do is be there and observe. Yet, he says, beyond the walls of Disneyland is Anaheim and the rest of Los Angeles, including the streets of Compton. He said, this is the real world with real problems. Congestion, drugs, violence. Surrounded by islands of upscale neighborhoods. Inside the Magic Kingdom, the outside world is almost inconceivable. As Christians, we forget what that world is like, don't we? I was talking to someone earlier this morning telling me that they took some food to the homeless encampment. We think that our job is just to invite a few fortunate others into the theme park to leave the troubles outside. He says, our job is not to increase the attendance at Disneyland. It's to tear down the walls and transform the world outside. 
I think one of the biggest reasons for this is a misunderstanding of God's kingdom and how it works. And this is a good example of it. This picture right here is a church. And I'm not here to just, I don't want to criticize churches. But we have to wonder what are we doing? It's a church that has at the movies as their, their sermon series. And, and they, they look for the gospel in Disney movies and like Pixar and things like that. And, and it is a confusion. We're confused. We're confused at how God's kingdom operates. We're, we're confused at, at, at what that kingdom is to look like. We're confused. We're conflating two kingdoms. And what we're doing is we're actually building little kingdoms in, in, as our churches instead of truly expanding his kingdom in the ways in which he does it. Undoubtedly, undoubtedly, Jesus is going to talk to them about the path of the Messiah because they didn't understand it. And this is the other kingdom that we confuse the church with is a political one. They were thinking that Jesus, that the Messiah was going to come and set up this earthly kingdom. So much so that two of them asked to be seated on his right and his left when he came into power. And next week we see, we see they still don't get it. The church is not Disneyland. It's not a political entity. The, the implications of, of God's kingdom are, are numerous. And we see that it is a top priority in the book of Acts. If, if you got your Bibles, flip to the last chapter in the book of Acts. I love this because it, it just shows you, it just kind of sums up the entire book of Acts. Last chapter, verse 30 this is the Apostle Paul, and he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters, quarters and was welcoming all who came to him. What is he doing? Preaching the kingdom of God and teaching, and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. He's making sure the same thing that Jesus is making sure right now, that people understand the kingdom of God and he's presenting Christ as Savior, pre presenting Christ as Messiah. That sums up. You got it at the front and you got it at the back. Sums up the entire book of Acts. What's the book of Acts about? Proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and teaching and living out the kingdom of God. Not this kingdom. That's why Jesus has to do this instruction for them. And we need to see it as well because we forget. We, we just forget. Because one of the ways in the center of this book, this verse comes out. One of the ways in which God expands his kingdom is not through churches that look like Disneyland. It's through what? Suffering and tribulation. That gets us out of our comfort. Right in the center of the book, we must go through many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. What is the church's path here on earth? That's it. 
That's it. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. It, it demands sacrifice from the church. It's going to be painful. It's not going to be pretty. It's not going to work according to our plans. Many things that happen in this book throughout, God's kingdom is expanded through ways where we're like, that doesn't make any sense, Lord. We, we wouldn't do that. Tribulation. God's sovereign hand guides and directs his kingdom work in a massive way in which he does that is through suffering and pain. And, and that's on a corporate level and it's on a personal level. We often look at suffering and pain in our lives as an obstacle. I know that I do. I hate it. I don't like being sick. I'm a big wimp when I get sick. I just want to be babied all the time. Or, or things that are worse than just being sick. Disease or the loss of a loved one or whatever it may be. And, and, and we look at those things and we see obstacles, we see things that are bad, but God uses them to expand his kingdom. And instead of seeing those things as obstacles, we need to start looking at them as opportunities. That's one of the biggest ways that God moves his church throughout this book is through suffering and persecution. There's a pattern in this book. They gather together, they pray, they prepare, they go out and proclaim, and because they're proclaiming, they're persecuted. It happens again and again and again and again. We must go through many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. We, we can't be ashamed of the gospel because of, of what we think may happen to us. We can't be afraid to proclaim the gospel because it's through persecution, it's through suffering, it's through tribulation that God's going to grow his church. And it's through these things that he's going to grow you and me personally. Conforming us to the image of Christ who is working through us. So that we can reveal that we have something beyond this world. Even in the darkest times of our lives. What is he doing in your life right now? What pain and suffering are you going through? Look at it as an opportunity to proclaim his faithfulness and the hope that we have. We have something and someone to live for. An eternity apart from that pain. An eternity apart from that suffering. An eternity full of love and forgiveness. And as we go forth and bring that message, we can trust that it will be received by some, not all. 
And that's because he gives us his Holy Spirit, which is the third key uh, to this preparation, is we need to rely on the Spirit's intervention. Notice what he says to them. He says he doesn't want them to move. So gathering them together, he commands them. This is the first of his orders here. He commands them not to leave Jerusalem, but to do what? To wait. To wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you have heard from me, for John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Dr. Bill Bright, Campus Crusade for Christ, tells the story of the, the famous oil, oil field called Yates Pool. He says, during the Depression, this field was a sheep ranch owned by a man named Mr. Yates. He said, Mr. Yates wasn't able to make enough on his ranching operation to, to pay the principal and interest on the mortgage, so he was in danger of losing his entire ranch. With little money, for clothes or for food, his family, like many others during that time, had to live on government subsidy. Day after day, he grazed his sheep over those rolling West Texas hills, and he was no doubt greatly troubled about how he was going to make his next payment. Then one day, a seismographic crew from an oil company came into the area and told him, hey, you might have oil on your land, can we drill? He allows them to drill, and the first well came in at 80,000 barrels a day. Subsequent wells were, dr were dr drilled, and more than twice that amount came out of those wells as, uh, also. In fact, 30 years after the discovery... A government test of one of the wells showed that it still had the potential flow of 125,000 barrels of oil a day, and Mr. Yates owned it all. He was a multimillionaire living in poverty. The problem was he didn't know that he owned all that oil. I look at a church like that sometimes. And I look out at the landscape of what's going on in this world, and I get, I get worried. I, I worry, you know, what if we go into a great and another depression? What if the money stopped flowing for Galilee Church, and, and we, have to, we have to cut a lot of our programs? We have to start being a lot more fiscally conservative. What if the government takes away our our status, and we have to start paying on our property taxes? What if the government shuts down the church? Are we going to be able to continue? Are we going to be able to succeed? Yes, yes I, that should be our answer, but my worries betray my true thoughts, don't they? Christ ascends, the Holy Spirit comes, and you and I have absolutely everything we need for what he calls us to do. Amen?
everything. This building can go. The monies can stop flowing. We are still the church. And we still have the power of the Holy Spirit to go forth and proclaim his gospel and to bear fruit for him. They, they, they didn't have a big budget, did they? We, we tend to forget this is a small band of believers. The, the word here for gathering is interesting. We're going to see this throughout the scripture, throughout the book of Acts. They're gathering together and they're preparing for something. They're preparing for their mission. And Jesus tells them a very important fact. Wait. Don't do anything apart from receiving the Holy Spirit. We tend to think of the Holy Spirit, and, and especially now during this day and age, as he's all about miracles and all these, these wonderful signs and wonders. The, the first thing that we see the Holy Spirit do through these individuals is proclamation. He empowers them to proclaim the gospel, and they're not all perfect, they're not professional speakers, are they? Do you and I have that same Holy Spirit? Absolutely. It's promised from the Father, and he says, John baptized you with water. You're going to be baptized with fire. And that fire is never, ever going to be quenched, folks. That fire that was lit on Pentecost still burns today, doesn't it? Why? This is why. <laughs> because the Holy Spirit lives in us. Later on, we see in just a few verses, you will receive what? Power. The, the waiting on the Holy Spirit, it, I think, is a principle that we, we need to practice throughout. The reliance on the Holy Spirit is a, is a principle that we need to continue throughout as a church. We don't want to go ahead of Christ. We need to rely on the Spirit to lead and to guide us and to empower us for the mission that we have. We need to be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit and act accordingly. Wait for him to intervene. He enables us. He equips us. The gathered group here is representative of the entire church. And this term for gathering, or it denotes a fellowship and an encouraging of, of one another. They're eating and drinking, and, and this fellowship is even more enhanced by the Holy Spirit. This is the same Holy Spirit who transformed Peter, who, who not, not too long ago was denying Jesus Christ to a servant girl and then is proclaiming the gospel to thousands of foreigners. It's the same Holy Spirit that we are going to see that fills Stephen, a deacon. He has one sermon, it's probably the greatest of all time, and then he dies for Jesus Christ. It's the same Holy Spirit that transforms an enemy of Jesus Christ, 
Saul and makes him one of the greatest ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Is, can that same spirit do those things today? Yes. Through who? I'm looking at him. Right? Through us. Same spirit, same power, same presence, same Lord, same gospel, same results. Get myself all worked up. We're all going to go out in the Gorham and knock down doors and people are going to think we're nuts. I'll visit you in prison next week. One guy says this, I like, I, I like this. He, he calls the Holy Spirit the, a life principle. <laughs> our, our whole life, it, it, we're, we're indwelled with the Holy Spirit. He, he says, Acts presents the Holy Spirit as a life principle of the early church. It's a, he, he's the principle that we need to, I think, recover in this way, in a biblical manner. It provides five separate accounts of dramatic instances of, of his outpouring on, on the, the lives of, of believers. And, and, and we'll see being filled with the Holy Spirit usually results in proclamation. It results in boldness to proclaim the gospel. People hear it and they believe. Go figure. They didn't have a big budget, did they? They didn't have mega church campuses. They didn't have streaming technology. They didn't have, I don't even know if they had a worship band. Do you think they had a worship band? Was Peter up there playing the bass? Oh, Peter, you're pretty good. Oh, come and hear Peter's worship. No. How did they do it? This is how. They were convinced that Jesus Christ was alive. Changed everything. They understood, eventually, not right away, God's kingdom and how it operated. What it's all about. They understood that this kingdom was passing away and God's kingdom is going to be for eternity. So we're going to live for that kingdom. And they relied on the inexhaustible resource of God's Spirit. That's how they did it. Folks, that's how you and I can do it. Do you think God can do the same thing that He did in the book of Acts today? All right, if we believe that, then let's go. Let's go. Because right now, there are Lots of people are drowning. Which ship are you and I going to be? Father, Lord, forgive us for the times that we have failed to be the church. I say that for myself, Lord. Times that we've not relied on your spirit, the times that we have been ashamed of your gospel, the times that we have chosen our comfort over your kingdom. 
Lord, I, I pray that this book changes our lives. I pray that your spirit through your word changes our lives. And that as a result of that, we go out and we try to convince others of the truth that Jesus Christ is alive. That in his name, there is hope, there is life, there is forgiveness. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.